We're going to be taking a little break from uh, Matthew over the summer and spending a little time in the book of uh, Proverbs, about six weeks. So uh, we'll uh, be starting that series next week. But today I wanted to uh, just focus on, on the 4th of July a little bit in our country, our founding fathers, and uh, our faith, and kind of try to weave it all together and make some sense of it so that we're hearts are prepared for communion time. <laughs> um, this weekend is quite a weekend for Americans. Um, they celebrate the birth of our nation. And we pause today and we acknowledge the independence of our country. And it's been quoted that America is great because America is good. You've heard that? And the quote goes on, it says, And if America ever ceases to be great, it will be because it has ceased to be good. Even though there's a lot of good left in our country, there's also a lot of bad. America is still great, but I think that sometimes when we look a little closer, when we look under the, the veneer, under the surface, there are some cracks There are some flaws in our goodness. Over the past 40 years, history has shown that we have drifted significantly from the goodness that made America so great. Our founding fathers were men of faith who never intended a wall to be built of separation, but intended to establish one nation under God. That was their desire. That was their creed. That was their driving element. That's what held them together. That's what caused them to wake up another day. And I think today to pretend somehow that the founding fathers were either atheists or even deists, as some claim, who wanted God out of public policy altogether, it's just wrong. It's not a proper representation of what history shows us. It's even more than that. I would say it's destructive. It creates kind of a vacuum in which people of faith, in which people of faith become the targets of ridicule and hatred. There was an article in the Washington Post years ago and it ridiculed Christians. And one of the quotes that they, they said in this article, they basically said that Christians are a bunch of easily controlled, uneducated, stupid people. Well, to say the least, that irritated a lot of Christians when they read that. And the story doesn't end there. It goes on because for the next two or three days after that story ran... The Post's fax machines were jammed with Christians sending in, faxing in their income statements, their degrees, and their diplomas, and their business licenses, and all sorts of things. See, the Founding Fathers called America a Christian nation. And don't believe anybody that tells you any different. It's just part of our history. 
the Supreme Court affirmed that it was a Christian nation for well over 100 years. Religion was indispensable to the nation. Do you know the founding fathers, you read through their speeches and stuff like that, they quoted the Bible profusely. Somebody estimated that 34% of all their quotes came right from Scripture itself. Do you know that they use federal dollars to pay for missionaries to go reach out to the Indians? They use federal dollars to pay for Bibles, to provide Bibles for the Indians? Do you know the first official act of Congress was to appoint a chaplain and to open in prayer? I mean, it's amazing how far we've come. But it's also amazing how far We've fallen away from our founding fathers' roots that were rooted in the Christian faith. So with all that, what does that say about us? What's our responsibility today? I want to remind you with the words of Christ and the words of Paul, and I want to cover three basic little subjects, and this is kind of a shorter message. I want to look at our priority, our place, and our purpose our priority, our place, and our purpose. Because you know what? To be honest, for the last 40 years, I think the Christian church has done a pretty lousy job of impacting the world in which we live. We're a nation of people who go to church. (laughs) Churchgoers. We're the most religious nation in the world, someone said. Last estimate, over 150 million of our citizens belong to some kind of church. But we failed to impact, it seems, public policy. We failed to impact the marketplace. We failed to impact a lot of different areas. And as one nation under God, I think our first priority should be that we should be people of prayer. People of prayer. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our first priority has got to be that we are people of prayer. Look at what he says here in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing, beginning in verse 1, chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, 1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for the kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So as people of faith... Our first priority should be that we are people of prayer. The first priority should be that we are people of prayer. And I'm not just saying that because it's the Christian thing to do. 
But I think, first of all, we have to do that because it's what I like to call proactive. It's proactive. Do you know that praying is one of the most important, powerful, even politically, culturally transforming tool that God gave us in planet Earth? The Bible claims in 1 Timothy that it should be our first response. He says, therefore, I exalt, I exhort, in verse 1, first of all. I mean, prayer is usually the first thing we talk about, the last thing we do. At least it, sometimes it is in my life. And if we're honest, it is in all of our lives that way. Paul uses a couple different words here for prayer. He says, first of all, there he goes, I urge you. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to pull you close together. I want to, I want to really get your commitment out of this. I exhort, first of all, I urge you. It's a personal plea. And that word first there means first in matter of importance. First in matter of importance. In other words, the most important thing that we could do as believers, and it seems like it's the last thing we do, is pray. The very first thing we should do is pray for kings and those in authority. That's what he says. He uses different words here for prayer. The idea of requests or supplications talks of needs. When our nation is needy, we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation. He uses the word prayer there. It's kind of the common communication. It's God just wants us to talk to him about the condition of our society. He wants to, us to talk to him, to ask him to work in the culture in which we live through us. He uses the word intercession there, which means to step in on behalf of someone. We need to be willing to do that as Christians. And he closes it off. We should do all that with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving. I mean, if we were to go around the room and ask how many of you pray for our president, the cabinet, the Senate, and the House, and the Congress, and, and the, the governor every day. How many of you pray for the Supreme Court? I don't know. I, I couldn't put my hand up. But it's the most important thing that we could do to affect change in their lives. And I hope this morning we walk away from our message here with just a little bit more conviction that will lead us to pray. Because it's proactive. It's what God expects us to do. But it's also pleasing. He says there that it's good, that it pleases God. This is something that is, is beautiful to God when, we, when his people are called together to pray for their country, for their leaders. That word pleases means to receive something gladly. It's kind of like you're getting a gift at Christmas time. You know, you receive it gladly. You don't, oh, no, not another, I don't want that. No, you don't do that. You, you receive it with open arms. It's pleasing to God. It's not only proactive, it's pleasing, but it's also pivotal. It's pivotal that we're people of prayer. I mean, sometimes my theology leads me to this point. Have you ever been here? Well, you know what? 
God is God. I'm not. He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So what are my prayers going to make any difference? You ever been there? I've been there. Why even bother? Well, the reason is because you look through Scripture. First of all, we're instructed to pray. But secondly, when you see God dealing with the prayers of his people, he loves to respond to the requests of his people. That pleases him. You can look throughout the Bible and you see over and over and over again where God responded to the requests of his people. Now, a lot of times our prayers tend to focus on us, our family, our kids, our grandkids, our health, or whatever, family, job, money, whatever it might be. But here in this text, it's amazing to me that Paul tells Timothy, first of all, before anything else, the one thing I want to make sure that you're doing is that you're praying for the king. You're praying for the king. And for those in authority over you. Now, you might say that's kind of a, well, okay, so what? So you're saying we should pray for our president, okay. But you have to understand the context here. You have to understand who was king when Paul was writing this. It was Nero. You know what Nero did? Nero basically made up a big story and blamed all the Christians for the burning of Rome. And caused them to be persecuted and executed by the thousands. And here is Paul saying, you need to pray for that man? See, so many times as believers, we think, well, okay, we don't disagree. We agree or we disagree with the presidential policy. And that dictates whether or not we're going to pray for him. Oh, if we have a, a president that claims to be a born-again Christian, oh, we're going to be on our knees every day. But if we have a president that claims to be, well, maybe he's Muslim, maybe he's Christian, maybe he doesn't know what he is, who knows? Well, then, you know, what's the use? We should be praying even more for that guy. Stop and think about it. If anybody needs our prayer, it's President Obama at this point in time. I would not want his job. No way. It's a no-win situation almost. And the reason we do that the reason we're to be praying for those in authority over us, and the text points that out, is because so that we can lead, what's it say, quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. So we're to be people of prayer. Mark it well. The quality of our culture is marked by the content of our prayers. It's very easy for us to sit in the four walls of the church and point at the world and go, oh, look at how bad they are. But how often are we on our knees praying for them, praying for their salvation, praying for Christ somehow to work in us and through us to reach out to them? So our priority should be we're people of prayer. But the second point is our place. What is our place in this society? And I want you to turn over to what the verses that Jerry read, Matthew 5, because it points out to us very clearly what our place is to be. We should be people of prayer who, and the second point is, who engage society. We're not to run and, and make a hut up in the mountains and live in a monastery somewhere. We're supposed to be engaged in our society. Look at... I know he read this, but I want to read it again in Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if the salt loses its flavor, how 
shall it be seasoned. It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He gives another illustration. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men so that when they see your good works, what do they do? They glorify you? No, they glorify God. Three reasons why we should be engaged in our society. First of all, he says there, you are the salt of the earth. We should season it. We are left here for a purpose. When God saved us, he could have just, his plan could have been, you know what? I'm just going to take you out of here. You're just going to be gone. Once you're saved, I'm, I'm hijacking you up to heaven. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not his plan. His plan is to leave us here so that we can season this earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice it doesn't say that you should become the salt of the earth. You see that? It doesn't say that. It says you are the salt of the earth. People of faith are the seasoning agent in our society, in our culture in which we live. And like it or not, that's what we are. That's what we're to be. There's no plan B. And to be real honest with you, so many times as Christians, we've done a lousy job at this. By overkill. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I've heard Christians do cruel and and just belligerent things in the name of Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you had a six-ounce filet and you were going to season it before you put it on the barbecue, would you take five pounds of salt and dump it on that filet? I don't think so. See, salt is to be a seasoning agent. I mean, if you know anything about me, you know that I enjoy a good bowl of ice cream, right? I I enjoy something even more, homemade ice cream. And I remember one time when we were smaller, I don't know if it was my sister or my brother, we were making homemade ice cream. And, you know, we had the barrel and the mixer thing, you had to turn it or whatever. I don't know what happened with the, the thing that holds the ice cream, but, you know, you put the rock salt around it with the ice and everything. Somehow it penetrated that little tin can. And I remember after we made all the ice cream and everything, we got the bowls out and we had big bowl ice cream. And everybody took a big bite of this vanilla ice cream. And it was salty. It was horrible. I mean, we're all gagging. We're spitting it out. It's like, what happened? And then we realized that part of the the can that was holding the ice cream had a hole in it and all the salt and the brine was going into the ice cream as we mixed it up. It was horrible. See, salt is a seasoning agent, but you don't don't necessarily want salt on your ice cream. At least I don't. But, you know, sometimes that's how Christians are in the world. They're so obnoxious. They're so combative. They overdo it in an unhealthy way. Have you ever cut yourself and got salt in that wound? How's it feel? Ouch. You don't like it. Doesn't feel good. See, people of faith are sometimes more like salt in the wound than the salt that heals and soothes and seasons. See, we're to be the the oil of grace that is in this world, in this lost and dying world, and we're to be that all God calls us to be. 
We're to do it in a seasoning way, not in a way that's rude or crude or judgmental. You don't see those characteristics in Christ. Sure, Christ called sin, sin, and he called hypocrites, hypocrites. That's fine. But he was also compassionate. So we should engage society so that we can be a seasoning agent in that society. Secondly, so that we can preserve it. Do you know that our Christian faith is really acts as a moral disinfectant to this society in which we live? In other words, it helps stop some of this decay and this perverse behavior that goes on around us. We should be part of the solution to this, not part of the problem. And so many times we got that backwards. You know, you can take a filet and set it next to a little teaspoon of salt all day long. And it's not going to have any effect on that filet, is it? It's not going to do anything for it. What do you have to do to make that salt affect that filet, that piece of meat, is you have to take that salt and you have to sprinkle it on the filet. It has to come in contact with the meat or it's not going to do any good. It can sit in your cupboard all day long. You can have all kinds of spices in your cupboard. But if you never use them to interact with the food you eat, your food's going to be kind of bland. We're called to penetrate our society with our Christian faith. And our founding fathers believed that. Look at what John Adams said. Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can be securely can securely stand. One of our founding fathers. Look at what Benjamin Rush said. I have been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. I am neither. I am a Christocrat. <laughs> I believe all power will always fail of producing order and happiness in the hands of man. He alone who created and redeemed man is qualified to govern him. And then Thomas Jefferson. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their own firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country. Now remember, this was him writing this. When I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. See, the founding fathers agreed that Jesus, when they came together, that he was the center point, the Christian faith. And we learn from his words, and we learn even from their words, that they engage society. So we should season it, we should preserve it, and then thirdly, we should enlighten it. Verse 14 says that you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do you put a light under a, a, a basket, but on a stand. So that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Once again, it doesn't say that you should become the light of the world, does it? It says you are. There's no second string here. There's no third string. We're it. That's it. 
And if we're not going to do our job, then there's going to be some darkness around us. So many times we complain in the society in which we live and all the debauchery and all the sin and all the filthiness that's going on all over the place. And yet how many times have we taken time to really pray and to ask God to move and to work? See, for better or worse, God intended that we are to be the people who light the way in another wise dark society. He left us here for that purpose. And just like the salt analogy, people of faith over the years haven't done all too well. Either we are all dark or we are so bright it's blinding. I mean, stop and think about this. What is the purpose of light? Is the purpose of light to blind someone or show them the way? See, sometimes as Christians, we become so assertive, we become so belligerent that instead of showing the way, we blind people. Remember when I was in a cave one time and they turned all the lights out. And I remember thinking, wow, it's really dark in here. And I wish somebody turned the light on and somebody finally turned a flashlight on. And it was so relieving to feel that light come on. But it was almost painful when that person inadvertently shined the light in my eyes. Because my pupils were like the size of quarters probably, being in the dark. All of a sudden, you're, you know, have you ever had that habit? It's very irritating. It gives you a headache almost. See, light is, is not to blind somebody, but it's to show them the way. And we need to do a better job at showing people the way to Christ. Our priority is prayer. Our, our place is people who engage society. And thirdly, our purpose, people of prayer who engage society to counter a corrupt culture. That's the purpose. That's why God left us here, to counter a, a corrupt culture. What do you mean? Well, you know what? We're the only light this world has. We're the only good news that they're going to hear is the gospel of Christ. You can take all the other soothsayers and the positive thinkers and everything. In the end, the stuff doesn't work. The only thing that really works to transform somebody's life is the power of Christ. And so he's left us here as his agents in this church time to go out into a dark and dreary and sinful and sometimes just pathetic and yucky world and roll our sleeves up and say, you know what? These people need to hear the gospel. And they're going to hear it from me, and they're going to see it from me. And I'm going to try to counter this corruption that goes on in our society. Church fathers believe this. George Washington, I don't know if that's up there or not yet. George Washington, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, look at what he says. Religion and morality are indispensable supports. Indispensable. In other words, you can't do anything without them. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. What was George Washington saying? He was saying that you've got to have some kind of religious principle, some kind of foundation. He believed it was Christ. He believed it was Christianity by everything he wrote in order to keep society from going corrupt. Noah Webster wrote this. 
The moral principles and precepts found in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all of our civil constitution and laws. All the evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising and neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. That's pretty direct. Can you imagine if a congressman stood up and said something like that today? He'd definitely be out. They'd kick him right out. See, our purpose is to counter the corrupt culture in which we live. Jesus said that, you know what? If you don't do that, you're going to lose your saltiness. And if you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing, except people are just going to walk all over you. And Jesus was pointing that, you know what? This is when a society becomes barbaric. I mean, we like to think of our nation, we like to think of our citizens as, as sometimes sophisticated, kind of a classy culture. Today, we got the techno age going on. Everything's, you know, I this, iPhone. I, Doug, in one of his pictures, had a T-shirt on. It said, I dad, which I thought was, was pretty cute. And then they got a little one for, for the little baby. And I'll just say it. It said, I poop, <laughs> which I thought was real cute. We'll edit that out of the thing. But anyway... But we think ourselves as this sophisticated, classy culture. And you know what? There is a lot of good. I mean, we can't say that this country is even as bad off as it is. It's not one of the best places in the world to live. But beneath the surface, under the veneer of our image, there's a rottenness. that wasn't there 40, 50 years ago. I want to give you a little snapshot of our society in which we live. Just real quick. Do you know that every 4.5 seconds, there's a theft? And every 15.4 seconds, there's a burglary going on? Americans steal from one another at an incredible rate, $10.6 billion a year. The cost of crime each year to American businesses is upwards of $40 billion a year. $40 billion dollars. Companies spend $4 billion a year on securing their own assets. And yet they still lose $7 billion to shoplifters. (laughs) Billion now, not million. Business Week said the total cost of crime is in the average of $450 billion a year. Can you imagine what our country could do with $450? Well, we maybe don't want to go there. But... You know, (laughs) but, you know, if we were just honest, violent crime has increased some 700 percent since 1962, 700 percent. Violent crimes committed in America are some five million. Every 34 seconds, someone is assaulted in America. One of seven Americans carry a weapon on them, and they're necessarily not the good ones, good guys. There's a rape every five minutes in America. It's one of the fastest growing crimes. It's four times faster than the general crime rate. In 1973, Americans spent spent $10 million on pornography. 1973. Last year, the industry topped off at well over $10 billion. Can you imagine? 
One billion of that was just for child porn. 1.5 million kids in the land of the free are used in children pornography every year. I mean, just to put it in perspective, 10 billion dollars over that. that that's more revenue than all the box offices of all the theaters in America combined that's more than the rock and roll and the country music makes combined I mean see when we fail to be people of prayer when we fail to engage our society the way God wanted us to and to counter a corrupt, a corrupt culture as we've done what happens well the whole culture suffers America's, Americans kill one another more than any other country in the world. In 1960, there were 6,000 murders. Latest statistic I could get in 2006, there was well over 18,000. And kids a year. And kids are killing, kids are killing kids. One writer said American kids kill each other more than any other country. See, our, our, our culture has become barbaric when you really look underneath the surface. But it's also become belligerent. You know, in the 1950s, there was no challenges at all to religious freedom. You know, you could put a cross anywhere you want. You could say whatever you want. In 1970, there were 84 challenges to religious freedom. People kind of raising their hands, well, that, that offends me. In the 1990s, there's over some 3,000 cases filed. Some of them include trying to declare the Pledge of Allegiance unconstitutional. There's suits to stop the president from using a Bible or to pray when he's sworn in. There's suits to stop chaplains in our military and in our Congress to pray. There's suits to remove in God we trust from our money. See, beloved, we gave up the universities, we gave up the public schools, and we gave up the court systems. We're about ready to give up the public sector. We're about ready to give up our ability to speak on behalf of God in this society, unless we really come together and begin to understand the seriousness of the situation. I mean, when a staff psychiatrist in Kentucky loses his ability to practice, they yanked his license because he was dismissed for inappropriate behavior. You know what the inappropriate behavior was? He prayed with his patient. And they fired him, and here's what they said, quote, that his beliefs were, here's what they said, detrimental to the patient's safety and hospital population. Not only do we live in a barbaric, belligerent society, but we live in a blind society. We live in a day and age when people are blinded to the obvious. I mean, you see it on every case every every corner i mean when a 13 year old is forbidden from taking an aspirin at school or getting her ears pierced without her parents permission they can't do that but they can go have an abortion and never tell mom or dad there's something wrong 
There's something wrong when U.S. officials stand before the U.N. Assembly and argue that there are not two genders, male and female, but there are five, male, female, homosexual male, homosexual female, and transgender. We live in a blind society when we have an organization, the National Endowment for the Arts, that produces stuff that's so bad, no one else will pay for it. And when conservative lawmakers want people to see what our tax dollars are paying for as far as this crude artwork, and they wanted to display it in the rotunda for everybody to see, there was a big hoopla and a big case handed down, and they said, oh, no, you could not even display this stuff publicly because it's so offensive. (laughs) And then our tax dollars are going to pay for it. Go figure. We live in a blind society when government removes all funding for abstinent-based programs in our public schools. Even though the studies show that abstinent-based programs are the best at dealing with teenage pregnancy. We allow children in the first grade to be taught about homosexuality and how it's just an alternative lifestyle. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Some of the things that they fund in the lawmakers, what they fund is just incredible. I mean, millions and billions and billions of dollars going to, you know, study life on the beach, Waikiki. Somebody got a grant for that for like $500,000. Hey, right here, man, I'll do it for 50000 I'll go do your study. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And we've seen this just happen. It's, it's simply because we've failed to interact. And we need to make sure that we, we allow our faith to be seen in this society in which we live. I mean, I know things aren't going to get better. I'm not saying, oh, we just come together and sing kumbaya and everything's going to work out. I I know that. But you know what? That's kind of like saying, well, you know what? God's already chosen. Everybody's going to be saved. So why even witness or pray for anybody? That's a fatalistic attitude. And we're not called to have a fatalistic attitude. We do those things because God has instructed us to do those things. And God has left us here to be the salt and the light of this earth. And you know what? I get as frustrated as, as anybody else. Just ask my wife. We start talking about politics, and it's just, you know, I just come off unglued. You know, I just, my, my brain can't comprehend some of the, you know, stupidity that goes on in our government. It's just ridiculous. But you know what? I've been very convicted lately that, you know, okay, great, you have your point of view and your political philosophy and all this, but are you praying for these people? Are you really praying that God would touch their hearts? It's interesting that one of the chaplains at Camp David is a guy by the name of Kerry Cash. He was a, in the Navy and the Marine Corps, I think, and he's a chaplain. And my nephew said, if there's anything this guy doesn't do, he doesn't compromise the word of God. He was with my nephew Luke over in Iraq. And he said, this guy is just a tremendous preacher. He's just Baptist background, just very solid in his faith. 
And it just so happens that Kerry Cash is the chaplain at Camp David. And so when the first family is ever there at Camp David on a Sunday, word has it that President Obama actually likes to hear this guy preach. And I'm thinking, you know, it's so neat that God would put somebody there who's not going to compromise just because he's the President of the United States. And so we need to be in prayer that somehow, some way, God would interact, that we, he would activate faith in that man's life. I mean, that we would see change carried out in our society because of who God is and how he works through us. That's what we're called to do. Can we trust God for that? Are we able to say, okay, God, you know what? This is what you've told us to do, and, and that's what I'm going to do. And the results are up to him. I pray that we can. And I pray that our nation will turn around. doesn't look good, to be honest, but, you know, I mean, God works miracles, right? And so we need to pray that God would call us back to our roots and what our founding fathers uh, believed Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, portion of our service. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Father, it's hard to conceive how far our country has come. And yet, it's also hard to conceive how far away from you it's gone. It's drifted. And Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work, first of all, in our own hearts, that we would be repentant people before you, that as your children, that we would realize that it's our role, it's part of our duty to be the salt and the light here in this, this world in which we live. And Father, this is, this is a great country, no doubt about it. And yet, there's so much injustice, there's so much sin, there's so much things that dishonor you Lord, I pray that we would just do what we can in our little microcosm of our world. Maybe it's at work or maybe it's within our family. Maybe it's on our job or in our school. That we would just live for you. And that we'd be faithful to carry the precious gospel of Christ to those who've yet to hear it. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. As I said, this is kind of a different kind of message. But, Lord, it does boil down to where your allegiance is. Are you willing to pledge your allegiance to Christ? To trust him for your salvation? Put your faith and trust in him, not in yourself. It's a hard thing to do. It really means you're kind of giving up control in a big way. That's tough. It was tough for me. But I'd never go back. I couldn't imagine living a life without Christ, without his guidance, without his peace, without his forgiveness continually in my life. Lord, we're all fallen people. We all need forgiveness. We all need your grace. And it's there for the asking. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, that they would cry out to you this morning. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Lord, I believe in God, but help my unbelief. Help me with the things maybe I'm having a hard time believing or yielding up to you. Whatever it may be, I pray that you would come to the end of yourself and realize that he's the only answer you have. You cry out to him and he would save you. He'll do that. 
And Father, we thank you for your son's sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, as we come to our communion time together, as we prepare our hearts with a song and, and just focusing on what your word has to say, Lord, I ask that you would minister your grace to us. Help us to close out the busyness of this world and maybe even the festivities that we're going to go to after church and this afternoon and just focus the next five minutes, Lord, on you and, and really to, to remember the work that you did on our behalf. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.